Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew, the sixth chapter, Matthew chapter six. We're going to look at verses one through eight today and verses 16 through 18 in a message entitled Living for an Audience of One, the Heart of True Worship. Our culture has a fascination with the rich and famous, and I date myself a little bit here. How many of you remember the story, this, this uh, uh, television show, The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, right? I, don't, I never did watch it, but I remember there was a show called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Our, our culture loves its stars, and we have shows like uh, America's Got Talent and American Idol today, which feed that desire and make household names out of people like Carrie Underwood and Kelly Clarkson and Jennifer Hudson and others. Our culture has always revered our greatest athletes and musicians and, and actors. When I was growing up, it was Mickey Mantle and Joe Namath and John Wayne and Anne Margaret and Elvis Presley, the Stones and the Beatles. And today, I guess, it's Rihanna, The Rock, Tom Cruise, Steph Curry, Jennifer Lawrence, Imagine Dragons, BTS. Kids, you listen to BTS any at all? Y'all only listen to Christian music, right? I know, I understand BTS is a South Korean boy band, so I know some of them are familiar with that band. But many of us grew up, and now our children are growing up, watching the stars of our day receive the highest accolades of the culture and these tremendous financial rewards. And at the root of this fascination, at the root of this adulation, is a little trait that we all resulted as a result of the disobedience of our ancestor Adam, and it's called pride. Pride. Pride leads us to think that if we receive approval from others, that makes us a more special person, a more valuable person. It's so easy to fall into that trap of feeling better about ourselves because folks are saying good things about us, because they seem to love us. And it's so easy to believe that if, if like the famous stars and athletes we see in media, if we could just be like them, if we could only achieve success and status and have people admire and respect our ability, well, that would make us feel better about ourselves. But I wonder how many of us could really handle that. You know, for some, success on that level absolutely destroys their lives. And with all the multitude of fallen stars that we could name, we, we've seen that money and fame and popularity and prestige are not the be-all, end-all that our culture would have us believe. And some of you are saying, well, preacher, if I had all that fame and money, I wouldn't blow it. I wouldn't do something foolish. But as Christians, I want to suggest to you that we need to go a step further and consider whether or not our effectiveness in serving as citizens of the kingdom of God is actually enhanced by the rewards and accolades of our culture. Ultimately, we have a decision to make. We need to decide whether we are living for an audience of many or an audience of one, whether or not we desire the recognition of the world or the reward of our Father in heaven. I believe it's virtually impossible to have both. Before you say, hold on now, I think I, think I can name an example or two. Let me tell you why I say it. It is virtually impossible to have the recognition of the world and the reward of the Father because those who take a public, uncompromising, unequivocal stance for the Father and His Word as in He is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through Him. And I believe the Bible. I stand on the Bible. I try to live by the Bible. If you live that kind of life, you will inevitably face persecution in this world on some level. Jesus has promised that would be the case. He said, if they hate you, know that they hated me first. So we're beginning a new 
section in the Sermon on the Mount as we enter chapter 6. And in our text this morning, Jesus speaks specifically to this propensity in all of us to crave the admiration of others. And He shows us how harmful it can be, not only to our current spiritual life, but also potentially hurtful when it comes to our heavenly reward. So would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Then we're, going to skip a, we're not going to skip these verses sermon-wise. We're going to come back to this. You know me better than that. But we're, today we're going to skip to these verses. Verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting, that they may seen by, be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may, be, may not be seen by others, but, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray, Father. We're always thankful for your word. And again, we, we're, we're, we touch upon a heard many sermons on perhaps and, and, and know very well ourselves. I, I pray today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will remind us of truths perhaps that we have neglected, Lord God, and perhaps open our eyes with new and fresh insights by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So in these verses, Jesus, Jesus identifies three behaviors, giving and praying and fasting. Now, obviously, Jesus is not telling his disciples that they need to abandon these disciplines, but that there's a right way to do them, a way that glorifies our Father in heaven. Jesus' main concern in speaking to these subjects is found in the very first half of verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So yes, we give and we pray and we fast, but we do those things, we are to do those things in a manner that doesn't draw attention to ourselves. Speaking of attention, what an amazing outpouring of affirmation you gave last Sunday to the recommendation of the Pastor Search Committee. For me personally, it was tremendously humbling and an overwhelming experience for me and certainly undeserved. One thought I had among many was that it could only go downhill from here. <laughs> Truly. And I was also reminded that there's only one person who will never let you down, and it's not me. Okay? Jesus is the only one who will never let you down. He's the only one who's perfect in all respects. He'll never disappoint us. He'll never fail us. He's the only one whom we can put our complete trust. However... I do promise that I will always do my best to follow His example and to be obedient to His Word, to lead you to do that as well. Kelly's comments and your reaction 
certainly set a, a high bar for me, but the, the standard that I hold myself to, that I am accountable to, is a much higher one, that of Christ alone. So I want to take a few moments here, right in the middle of this sermon, to share some of what guides me and motivates me with regard to pastoral ministry and church in general. I, know, I want you to have a good idea of what you're getting if you vote for me next Sunday and you have an opportunity to come back tonight. I urge you to do so for Q&A. If any of these things pique your interest and you want to ask for a little more in-depth explanation. First of all, part of a pastor's responsibility is to cast vision. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And going forward, I'm going to be seeking to do that along with the other leadership in the church to keep us focused in the right direction, our eyes fixed on our Savior. And, but then at the same time, to be open and courageous enough to break new ground and to give new ideas and, and methods thoughtful consideration. The methods change. The message never does. It's always rooted in Scripture, informed by knowledge and experience and research, both of my own and that of other church leaders and of all church members. It's vital, I believe, that pastoral leadership guide the church in what we do and how we do it and communicate why we do what we do. Effective communication helps develop a strong sense of purpose. The New Testament is quite clear with regard to local church leadership, identifying those men, that's plural, as shepherds, pastors, and elders who have the responsibility of leading, teaching and preaching the Word, protecting the church from false teaching, exhorting and holding themselves and every member accountable through the application of sound biblical doctrine, visiting the sick, praying, and having oversight with regard to theological issues that might arise that could affect the church, both inside the church and outside the church, as in our context, perhaps things that happen at the level of the Southern Baptist Convention. These are men tasked with watchfulness and prayerfulness, men who are aware of changing issues in the culture and how they may affect the church. These are men who continually educate themselves, especially in Holy Scripture. They diligently guard their own walk with the Lord and always pray for the flock as a whole and for individual members. Always pray. Pastors are protectors and watchmen and defenders and guardians of the people, and it is a demanding, involved, taxing, in many ways, work. Not a lording over CEO type position, not a detached, impersonal board of directors type of position. Now, all, the, all these men, are, are, they're, they're called to serve. They lead the church. They're biblically responsible for the spiritual oversight of the church. Pastors are not the total ministry of the church. Each of you are ministers. Would that we had a sign out front that said, ministers, all the people, assistant to the, to the ministers, and have my name right there. Okay? Each and every member is a minister according to their giftedness. Every member is valuable and an essential part of the body. And so ministry is the work of the whole church, not just one person, not even a group of people. The key is love. Pastors love the people and love to be with the people. They look for ways to be involved with the people, to spend time with the people. A good shepherd has as an overarching virtue a self-sacrificing love for the church and the people. Word about discipleship is evangelism. You've heard some of this already. I've challenged you to seek out and develop relationships with at least one person to pray about that and to begin to get involved that you might eventually share the gospel. Uh, I want to say that certainly there are some that are more gifted in this area than others, but that does not negate 
our responsibility to be obedient to the command that God has given us to be His ambassadors. All of us. To make disciples. To share the gospel and our testimony. Every born-again believer has a personal testimony. Say, I have a testimony. You do. And to call the lost to place their faith in Jesus. With regard to mission work, we've been given the template for the scope. That is mission work. That's ministry outside the walls of the church in Acts 1.8. Our mission's philosophy needs to be biblically rooted, balanced, prayerfully considered, and well thought out. We're going to recognize that not everyone can go, but everyone can give. And everyone can pray to support the missional work this church does from the Tri-Cities to the Pacific Northwest to the North American continent and to the ends of the earth. I want to tell you that the Holy Spirit working in the church in and through the lives of her people is indispensable. We can do nothing apart from God the Father, to glorify God the Father, apart from the Holy Spirit leading and empowering. And, and that's why I call the little s spirit. You've heard me use that phrase before. That's really koinonia, the fellowship among believers. It's vital to the health of the church. And we are all responsible for maintaining and nurturing that little s spirit. So one of the ways that I'm suggesting that we build up the little s spirit going forward is to put the past behind us. I'm not talking about the ways that God has worked in your life in the past. Those are important spiritual markers to hold on to, okay? You know what I'm talking about. Focusing on the future of RBC, not the past. Individually and collectively committed to the goal of the calling of Jesus. And then I believe we need to have some clear expectations about what is expected of every one of us going forward. And simply put, I want to say the expectation going forward that I'm going to have and the leadership is going to have is that we are all, every single member of this church, going to be right and do right according to the Word of God. Collectively and individually, demonstrating our love for Jesus by our obedience to His commands and the way that we love one another. They will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Our commitment to the church, which is our family, our church is our family, beloved, and we love one another as family members. The expectation going forward is that we're going to, every one of us, put those past hurts and disappointments in the rearview mirror and look with faith and hope to the future, with joyous expectation that God's going to move. And He's going to move in mighty ways in our midst. But we need to learn from the past. Absolutely. But it is vital that we not live in the past. We must not allow our minds to dwell in the past. It will prevent us from living in the present and living with a hope-filled perspective for the future. Another expectation going forward is that when we falter or fail in our walk, as we all surely will from time to time, is that we lovingly hold one another accountable to the standard which is Christ and His Word. But not with a mindset that is guided by judgment and retribution, but one that's guided by a spirit of love and restoration and forgiveness. The expectation going forward is that every member is going to zealously guard and nurture the unity of the body. All of us setting aside personal preferences and prerogatives and in humility valuing others above ourselves. Striving to love one another, again as family, with the love of God. Understanding that we're the bride of Christ, that, that He died for the church. He died for this church. And we can do no less than defend her. And that includes how we love one another. 
I want you to know that I am a complementarian when it comes to roles in the church because the Bible teaches complementarianism. That means many men and women are of equal value in God's eyes. Women are not inferior to men. God has merely assigned different roles to men and women in the church and in the home because that's how He designed us to function. We all share the image of God, every single one of us, but we have God-ordained roles and God-ordained functions within the church and in the home, rules and functions that mirror the functional hierarchy of the Trinity, in fact. The Bible clearly teaches the sovereignty of God in all things, meaning He has the right and power to do all that He decides to do. And His sovereignty is always wise. It's always purposeful. John Piper puts it well. Almost everything that needs to be done to bring about His purposes, excuse me, absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about His purposes, God sees to it that it happens. Our Father is totally sovereign, perfectly holy, and the consummate perfect judge. I want to serve you as your pastor for however long God wants me to be. And I already love this church and I have a growing love for different ones of you individually that I've had the opportunity to spend time with and I, I look forward to, to more of that. I want to promise you that I will always be guided by Holy Scripture. I will always be attempting to do what I do and say what I say and lead in the direction He wills with the best interest of RBC, His bride in mind. When I retired a little over two years ago, I really thought it was for good. I, I could see myself finding ministry, filling pulpits for small churches on an occasional basis, but I never envisioned serving as an interim pastor for Richland Baptist Church or certainly didn't consider the possibility of serving as your full-time pastor. I did not seek this position. I did not desire this position at first. But God had other plans. He's given me a heart for Richmond Baptist Church, and, a, and a pa I want you to know a passionate desire to serve you as your pastor. A word about what motivates me. I know some of you might have questions about age. I want you to know I have questions about my age as well. It's okay. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. I like to say you can only be young once, but you can be immature your whole life, and that I don't mean I don't mean immaturity in the negative sense. I mean that in the way you perceive things. Unless I look in the mirror, I think I'm thirty. Okay. <laughs> What motivates me? As a family, we don't have the financial obligations we had when we were younger, so I am unmotivated by money. At my age, I'm certainly not looking for the possibility of Richland Baptist Church being a stepping stone to another church in the future, so I am unmotivated by ambition. With regard to that, there was a time occasionally when the praise of men mattered too much to me, but I assure you, I am no longer motivated in the slightest by the approval of and praise of men. I live and breathe to glorify my Father alone. I preach and I pastor to the glory of my Father alone. I promise to lead and shepherd with no other motivation than the glory of God and the edification of you, His people. My plan is to be here both feet firmly planted, my mind fixed on being the best, best pastor Preacher, shepherd, leader, I can be for however long that may be. Now, with a new pastor always comes the potential for change. But I promise you, I will never suggest change for the sake of change. In the vernacular, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Okay? 
Having said that, it is the leadership's responsibility and the shepherd's responsibility and really every member's responsibility to be aware of ways that we can more faithfully align our church and our mission with God's Word and more effectively accomplish the mission of our church. I will always attempt to lead us to do just that. Okay, let's get back to the sermon proper. If we're honest about it, there are times when we have desired the appreciation and the applause of men. We're human. Times we sought to win their approval. But as believers, as Christ followers, there, there ought to be conflict within us regarding those feelings which are sinful. There should be conflict that comes because our hearts have been changed by God. The, our ultimate desire should now be for God to be glorified in everything, regardless of what man says. We shouldn't give in order to impress others. We shouldn't pray in a way that says, you know, listen to how spiritual I am, how, I'm, how in touch with God I am. And we shouldn't fast in, in a way that draws attention to what should be a sacrifice made with humility. No, with a new heart, a heart set on glorifying God, a mindset that's grounded in He must increase and I must decrease mentality of John the Baptist with that heart believer new desires are part and parcel of that exceeding righteousness to which Jesus calls us as his people so Jesus explores three spiritual disciplines giving to the needy praying and fasting that are or should be a part of our lives and I relabeled them for the purposes of our look at this text to reaching out to others reaching up to God and reaching in to manage our lives did you know that some 795 million people in the world do not have enough food to lead a healthy, active life? That's about one in nine people on earth. Did you know that Asia is the continent with the most hungry people? Two-thirds of the number of those who struggle with hunger in this world on a daily basis live in Asia. Did you know that sub-Saharan Africa is the region with the highest percentage of population of hunger? One person in four on the continent of Africa are undernourished. Were you aware that poor nutrition causes nearly half, 45% of all deaths in children under five? 3.1 million children every year. 45 million children suffer from severe malnutrition across the globe. That's nearly one out of every three children under the age of five. And before you're tempted to say, well, that's awful for those hungry people over there, Pastor, I'd send them my, my, my leftovers if I could. Listen carefully. In 2022, 34 million people in the United States suffer from food insecurity. That's up 6% from 2021. That includes 9 million children. 53 million people turned to food programs in their community in 2021. 100% of the counties in America have food insecurity. That boggles my mind. What can we do? The problem seems so insurmountable. And I'm reminded of the starfish illustration. You remember the old man walking down the beach and sees a younger guy out in front of him tossing starfish, which are littering by the thousands of the beach one by one into the ocean. He asked him, what are you up to? What are you doing? You can't possibly make a difference. The young man picked up another starfish, threw it in the water and said, made a difference to that one. But we can make a difference. 
through Manor Market Ministry, RBC's making a difference. One child, one sack of food at a time. Reaching the community through food distribution at Chief Joe Middle School, as well as those who come to the church seeking food assistance. For eight years, RBC has been serving food sacks. Forty sacks every week to students during the school year. Fourteen hundred food sacks last year. There are twelve RBC members currently serving on the Manor Market Ministry, and they would welcome more if you want to be a part of that, right? Every week, you guys, and recently with Vacation Bible School, would donate food items during the year, throughout the year. Manor Market supplies food sacks for walk-ins and needs at the RBC office. And just a note here, RBC is going to be hosting the Second Harvest Mobile Market where they're going to distribute 300 food boxes on Wednesday, October 25th at Chief Joe Middle School. Word about the Southern Baptist Hunger World Hunger Fund. We're talking about giving alms to help the needy here. I want to make sure you're aware of something that has always really had me sold on the World Hunger Offering of the SBC. You need to know that when a dollar is contributed to the Southern Baptist World Hunger Offering, unless otherwise designated, 80 cents out of every dollar goes for overseas hunger projects. 20 cents is sent to support hunger projects in North America. And because we already have the missionaries in place and volunteers in place, and promotional expenses come through the budget, 100% of your gifts go for the purchase of food for the hungry. There are no, there are no, there's no overhead. So Jesus deals with this matter of giving to the needy, beginning in verse 2, the giving of alms, a specific kind of giving that was expected of all who seek to do God's will. He says, so when you give to the needy. Not if you give to the needy. So it's obviously something that we're all expected to participate in. He he expected those original hearers, and he still expects us, his followers, to to, to reach out to others who are less fortunate to us, who may not have what we have, and help them in their time of need. But he doesn't just teach us that we should help give to help the needy. He continues, as he has been doing, to teach us that the attitude behind the action is as important as the act itself. He, he says, do not announce it with trumpets when you give to those who are poor. He says, this is what the hypocrites do. They do it so that others will notice them and they'll be honored by men. And he tells us in verse 2 that this admiration and adulation would wind up being all that they received. It would be, Jesus says, their reward in full in other words beloved we can have either the reward of God or the recognition of others and if we choose the recognition of others that's it their applause becomes our reward we forfeited any future heavenly reward by settling for man's reward in this life so Jesus goes on to give some practical teaching here about how we're to give alms and we're talking about giving over and above our tithe here he says we should do it in secret The illustration he uses is that our left hand should not know what our right hand is doing, which is just another way of saying we shouldn't give in a way that's easily seen by other folks. If we give with our right hand, then someone as close to us as our left hand should not be able to tell what we're doing. And when we reach out and and give in this manner, Jesus says, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Our reward when we give as Jesus teaches in these verses comes from God the Father. And yet, still, even that reward is not our prime motivation. As His children, when we give alms, when we give to help the needy, we're motivated by a desire, or should be, to do His will. Jesus pointed out that the 
hypocrites in the synagogue were giving because they hoped to receive recognition of it. But, but beloved, it's, it, it can never be about what we get out of it. It's, it's not, it can never be about any kind of accolade that we receive for ourselves when we reach out to those who are less fortunate than us. Three preachers sat discussing the best positions for prayer when a telephone repairman was working nearby these three preachers talking and the first preacher said you know kneeling is definitely best absolutely another said no I get the best results when I'm standing with my arms outstretched to heaven a third insisted you're both wrong the most effective prayer position is lying prostrate face flat on the floor that repairman couldn't help himself any longer and he interrupted and said hey guys the best praying I ever did was hanging upside down from a telephone pole something to that so Jesus teaches us next about how we are to pray our life as we reach up to God and it's not so much about the physical position as those preachers were talking about but about the attitude of our heart our motive verse 5 starts out with the words again here when you pray now obviously we know that we've, we've got to have a, a, a dynamic prayer life we get this we know that if we, if we don't have an active prayer life consistent prayer life we can't stay in right relationship with, with the father and if you're not there right now i'd encourage you just 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 to do it just start tomorrow morning start this afternoon just start doing it every single day be persistent until you're consistent okay just start back you know the blessings you received in the past from that if we want to experience the full blessing of knowing and being loved by our father we must have an active prayer life and just like with giving to the needy, our prayer is something that must be offered with the right attitude, with the right motive. He refers, Jesus does, to the hypocrites who love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street, street corners that they may be seen by men. So again, they're, they're driven by recognition that they can receive from other men. So they would just select this highly visible location, one that would make it possible for a lot of folks to hear what they were, what they were saying as they prayed these elaborate, over-the-top prayers using all this clever rhetoric I can imagine folks standing around and listening with amazement at their, at their considerable oratorical skills. You know, wow, that was beautiful. I wish I could pray like that. Might have been what they said. And that's what motivated these men. They were driven by that. They were after the praise of men in their praying. It wasn't about getting right with God. It wasn't about interceding for others or praising or thanking God. They, in fact, were talking to the bystanders as much or more as they were talking to God. And what they got for their efforts was the praise of those men who heard. The great tragedy, Jesus tells us, is that this praise was all they received. It was their reward in full. Our prayers are to be done in secret, and you should go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father. After all, we're supposed to be praying to God, not to other people. And God sees what is done in secret, Jesus says, what we pray, the attitude behind our prayers, and He will reward us accordingly. Now listen, before you say, well, why do we pray in church then, preacher? We can do that because, because Jesus is calling us, what he's calling us to do, in essence, even in corporate settings on Sunday morning and in the midweek prayer and Bible study in your small groups, we can do that because it's as much about the attitude and the motivation of the prayer as it is the physical location or the position of the prayer. The goal of Jesus' teaching here is for us to take the focus off ourselves and impressing others and put the focus on where it belongs, on the Father. In verse 7, Jesus goes on to instruct us not to keep on babbling, not to use empty and hollow repetition when we pray. 
So it's not about how articulate we can be. It's not about how ornate a phrase we can turn. That's not what makes for beautiful prayers. That's what these pagans to which Jesus is referring were all about. They were all about being heard for their many words. You and I both heard that kind of prayer before, sadly. Slick phraseology, big words, spirit and passion seemingly lacking, words meaningless to the prayer, to the one to whom they're praying. Jesus tells us to focus on the point and purpose of prayer. Besides, he says, your father already knows what you need before you ask him. So if that's the case, beloved, can't we just talk with him in straightforward language that communicates our desire to be in line with his will? For this reason, I love the prayers of newborn believers. I love the prayers of newborn Christians, whatever age they are. I love the prayers of children for that reason. They're always so simple and so direct. No flowery phrases, just, just from the heart and to the point. One little boy offered up a Thanksgiving prayer for the family. He prayed, Dear God, this is Jimmy. Thank you for Thanksgiving and Christmas and all the holidays. Thank you for the turkey and the dressing and mom and dad and Father, thank you even for my little sister, although she can sometimes be a pain. Thank you for loving us. And oh yeah, God, take care of yourself because we're sunk without you. See, right there, man. Just simple and straightforward and direct. As we come to a close today, we see that Jesus deals with the discipline of, of managing our lives. And the specific issue He takes up here is fasting. Now, fasting's got kind of a bad rap. For a lot of different reasons. It, it is undoubtedly the most overlooked and neglected of the spiritual disciplines, but it, beloved, it should not be. I'm talking to myself here too now. Fasting is simply about self-denial that we might be more fully surrendered and, and focused upon God. Jesus again says, if you fast. Did you say that? When you fast. So he's taking it for granted. This is going to be a discipline that every one of his followers is going to participate in. And the issue again is the motivation of the person who's fasting. It's the attitude of the heart. There are men in, in Jesus' day who, who, were, who were, wanted everyone to know how pious they were and how religious they were, so they would fast to be seen by men. They would put on these long and gloomy faces. They were disheveled. They wanted to make sure that everyone knew what they were doing, denying themselves for God. Only it wasn't about God at all. Fasting was and remains today a, a, a dynamic spiritual discipline that we can use to draw close to God, to redirect and refocus our attention and our affection to the things of God. These men to whom Jesus refers here wanted to be identified as spiritual persons. They wanted everyone to see them. They wanted everyone to honor them for their piety. And people did take note, and people did praise them. And Jesus once again says, that's all they got out of it. They have received their reward in full. So Jesus teaches that we are to fast, beloved, but that it should not be noticeable to others when we do so. So we don't hang our heads. We don't go around looking haggard and deprived. Jesus says, in fact, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, do what you do have to do to look like nothing special is going on, even though something very special and spiritual and sacrificing is, in fact, going on. God is to be our sole audience when we fast. We don't need to run around telling everybody, oh, you know, I'm fasting this week. I can't eat that. No one else needs to know. Our reward 
then will be from God. So let's wrap this up. It's ironic that a spiritual experience of self-denial can turn into this experience of self-gratification, but it can be done so easily. It will be just that. If our motivation is to show other folks how spiritual we are. So the option, once again, is between the reward of God and the recognition of others. What Jesus is after in us is that we develop an understanding of the real issue that we engage in in spiritual activity, whether that activity is reaching out to others, reaching up to Him, or reaching in within ourselves. It must be done with a focus on our Father in heaven as an audience of one. If not, then something very special special and very spiritual can wind up being sinful and, in fact, self-serving. We may end up surrendering this unsurpassed, unimaginable reward our Father has for us in exchange for the recognition from men here on earth. Beloved, a recognition that ultimately means nothing. So why do we do the things we do for the Father? Why do we serve in the church? Why do we teach? Why do we minister in the nursery? Why do we hand out bulletins? Why do we preach? Why do we lead music? Why do we work with children or youth? Why do we give? Why do we pray? Why do we deny self? Why do we do any of the things that we do for the Father? Because it's quite possible to do any of all all those things from an impure or a mixed motive. We can too easily, all too easily, make it about pride and, and about ego. We can make sure that everyone knows what it is we're doing. We can leave behind these traces we've been there so that others will know we've done something. We can do that. But if we do, Jesus very plainly tells us that recognition is all we get. We will have our reward paid in full here and now. Nothing to look forward to. I confess there have been times as a pastor when I've made an effort to let people know that I visited or I called or I attempted to minister to them. You know, I missed them when I tried just so they wouldn't think I hadn't done my job as the pastor, just so they wouldn't think I had neglected my duties as their pastor, neglected them. I want to make sure I... I got the credit I deserved or really I didn't suffer the wrath from them for them feeling that they hadn't got the attention they deserved from me. And, we, and we've all been guilty of wanting to make sure that people knew we were doing something worthy of praise. We all crave recognition on some level for, from others for our efforts. But if and when we do, if that's our motivation, Jesus says we receive the only reward that attitude can bring us. But I don't want the incomplete reward that people can give me. Do you? Mm -mm. I want the blessedly complete reward God has in store for me. You, if you and I rely on people, we receive what people can give us, which is something. But if we rely on God, we get what He can do, which is incomparably greater. We have a choice. Do we want the recognition that people can give us or the reward that only our Father can give us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being in your house today, as always. We don't take it lightly, this privilege. We gather here with joy and celebration, laughter even, but also with a, with a somberness and a seriousness because we're coming into your presence. 
So, Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to sing praises and to pray and to fellowship and to hear your word proclaimed, to look ahead to the future of Richland Baptist Church, Father, as guided by your Holy Spirit. But most importantly, Father, we're just here because we want to encounter you. You've promised to be where two or more are gathered, so we trust in that promise. Father, we want to be filled freshly every time we come through these doors, that when we leave this place, we might be overflowing, that that overflow might minister to those we come into contact with. I want to continue to pray for us as we seek those people out in our sphere of influence with whom we can develop relationship and share the gospel. I pray for your guidance, Father, upon each who will consider in the coming days who's going to serve this church next. I'm thankful, Father, for the desire you've placed in my heart, but Lord, all of us, me included, want what you want only. Desire to please you only, to serve you only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.